Welcome to Song Surgery, where we dissect hit records with the songwriters who composed them and the singers and musicians who performed on them. I'm Sid Holmes. Let's get started. In 1963, two school teachers, Willie Clark and Johnny Pearsall, started Deep City Records, creating the musical juggernaut that became known as the Miami Sound. Songwriter Clark teamed up with Clarence Reed and a string of local hit records followed, propelled in part by Betty Wright, a teenage girl with a womanly voice who landed the duo on the national charts. This is Willie Clark's story of that journey. Betty Wright, clean up woman, tonight is the night. No pain, no gain. No pain, no pain, no pain, no pain, no gain, no gain. Mm -hmm. And a Grammy Award for Where Is the Love? How did you meet Betty Wright? I met Betty Wright in Johnny's record shop. I had heard about her before I met her. I kept hearing about her mostly from Clarence Reed. And he was telling me, uh, hey, this, this girl uh, can sing. She's winning all the talent shows. And I said, who is she? And he kept saying Betty Wright. And every, he kept, every time we got a chance to talk about singers and we writing songs, he said, uh, hey, I was doing this uh, rehearsal for background for a session, and I kept hearing this lead voice, and I kept looking around and see which one of the girls was singing, and they, all of a sudden they stopped singing, and I heard a voice coming from outside of the house. And I said, who was that? Clarence said, I suspected it was the same girl I had heard about. He said, Betty Wright, and I kept hearing about her, but the first time I met her was in Johnny's record shop. I was totally impressed about hearing her and meeting her in person because she shut down all the talent shows. When the competitors found out that she was going to be on the show, they wouldn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> they knew she was going to win, so why should we go? And, you know, uh, Miami is full of talent. I mean, they had some super people on these shows. So Clarence had heard her singing. She was working between the, the two of us, Henry Stone and Deep State of Production. And when he get angry with us, he would go to Henry Stone. When he get angry with Henry, he'd come back to us. So I had this challenge to keep him with us as long as we could. And I had a way of being able to work with him. And I think I won out because I promised him if we got some hit records, I'll make sure that he, he was recorded and paid strict attention to. We had a demo recording studio in Johnny's record shop. Whenever we got to go to a full-blown studio, we had, uh, had to move out. We were in a position to build a studio, and we thought we were in a position to get financial backing from the bank. Since all of us were like teaching school and, and had decent background and credit, you know, and money coming in. But it was in the 60s in the Deep South. 
So all we had, we could not get a loan from any bank uh, or business loan. And so only thing we had to work with at, at Johnny's record shop was a piano and a reel-to-reel tape recorder, two-track stereo. So we would practice with the piano and perfect our music and arrangements on that two-track studio. And then we would move uh, somewhere like uh, Criteria Recording Studio, or we go to Dukoff. Those were the two best Top Gun studios in Miami. And uh, it took a little while for us to be able to pay per hour. But when we had something really good, they allowed us to write post-dated checks. And sometimes they would have checks thicker than a dictionary, but they would allow us to come in there because I think they really liked what we were doing. The Miami Sound was created by Deep City Records, which was founded by two school teachers, Willie Clark and Johnny Pearsall. How did you two meet? We met in Miami. We found out as freshmen we were going to the same college. FAMU, Florida A&M University. At FAMU, I got a very good super education there. I was like in the top four in the county as a teacher in my field, Miami, Florida. And it was because of the teaching I got and and the guidance of Almighty God. But FAMU is a super, super college. What did you major in? Certified to teach kindergarten to 12th grade art and graphics. Were you always musically inclined? I would say yes. I never remember a day in my life that music wasn't going through my head. I was writing uh, poetry or creating some kind of fictitious story, you know, like an adventure. I used to be the storyteller in my neighborhood. And all my friends would gather around and say, come on, Willie. Uh, but they would ask me to tell them an adventure story. And I would start out like something like, hey, we had two explorers and and they landed on this island, and they knew this island had some very dangerous, unseen, unheard animals that the world had never heard of before. <laughs> you know, I would start there and they'd get them to lean it forward. Then I would make up a story on it, you know, that kind of stuff. And how old but, were you when you were doing this? I'm probably about three or four. Oh, wow. <laughs> a kid, a youngster. I used to hear music all the time. And, and you know, uh, one thing I do remember is my influence. The music that I was listening to back in back when I was growing up, it's like a, a, a cross-section of all the music in the whole wide world. If it sounds good, if I didn't understand the lyrics and the music was good, I liked that. And it, was, it, it got to be a part of me. So when I started writing lyrics... I would have a melody to match the groove of the lyrics, the beat, the rhythm. When did you start playing drums? At Booker T. Washington High School in Miami. Went into the band to play drums, but I really wanted to play trumpet. And I couldn't play trumpet because my family couldn't afford a trumpet. So they could buy a drum. So they bought me a drum. So I beat the drum at Booker T. Washington High School. And when I went to FAMU and majored in art, I had courses in being a lyricist, a storyteller, looking at paintings like the Mona Lisa, Quistler's mother, and to write poetry that would match that painting. 
that was all part of the curriculum of being an art education major? Yeah, that was part of the creative building process. So that had to really help with your ability to write lyrics and melodies. Oh man, that turned me on to the max. Tell us about your experience as the lead drummer for the Marching 100 Band. Uh, the Marching 100, uh, you had to be, you got to be a man to be in that band at that time. You just had to be super. The band was like harder to get into than the football team. In fact, it came out that we rehearsed and practiced more than the football team. And uh, it was all men when you went to college. They call you Mr. So it was Mr. Clark, and that made me feel big. (laughs) 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 So you had to, it was too strenuous at that time for girls to be even thought of, to even want to get out there because we practiced so hard and so precise that guys would fall out with nosebleed. If you were a smoker, you had to quit smoking. Oh, we used to march like five, 10 miles nonstop. And I said, wow. Like, we like had athletes. To yeah. When I left FAMU to come back to Miami to start teaching school, I had three or four notebooks of lyrics. So when I met up with Clowns Reed, I knew I had to have something to get his attention because he was the kind of person that he thought everybody couldn't measure up and I think he was right. He he just didn't have that open attitude like a teacher would have to give somebody a chance. But when I showed him my lyrics and we read through my lyrics, he immediately stopped banging out on a piano. And I went and bought the piano. It cost me maybe about $50 or something, a hundred. What was Clarence's background? Clarence used to brag about being a third grade dropout, but I never would really, I never, I never believed what he was saying. I got more sense than that. And I dropped out of school in third grade. And I used to say, Clarence, be quiet. They're giving you credit for fourth grade. (laughs) (laughs) So he was a writer. When you met Clarence, he was already writing songs. He was an original, original creative person. And what he had that I didn't have at that time was street knowledge and knowing the people in the industry. Because the four years I've spent at FAMU becoming a school teacher, he spent that same amount of time, probably more, being creative, a hardcore songwriter. The only thing was missing with both of us is that I couldn't find anybody to lay music behind my ideas. And he couldn't find anybody to lay meaningful lyrics around his ideas of his music. So when we teamed up, we were a perfect fit. What was the first song that you wrote with Clarence? The first song I wrote with Clarence that was a hit that they still play today is uh, Willing and Able by Helen Smith. That was the biggest thing at that time. Your business partner, Johnny Pearsall, he was a business education major. How did you two connect in school? 
where we had the same ideas and we liked the same music and we would go to the same nightclub and we had what you might call, he was almost like a protector. He lived in Tallahassee. His mom had a house on the campus. And by my being a freshman, he had avenues and notoriety in Tallahassee. By us being close friends, I always wanted to be around him because he knew his way around. And so automatically, by being out of Miami, I was it was like I couldn't ask for anything better than to be with somebody who knew their way around Tallahassee because I came in contact with some notorious people up there. And when they saw him, they were most of the time bagged down. How did you and Johnny discover that you had a mutual passion for music? Well, he heard me singing in a group in Tallahassee, and uh, we would always talk about music. And uh, he was what you might call really, really orientated to having all the number one songs. At that particular time, he would have those records. He had the equipment to play this music for me over some nice speakers. He had the tape recorder and all that. So I was drawn up trying to find him if I couldn't see him. So we became very close friends because we had a mutual thing about listening to good music. How did you two decide that you were going to collaborate? Because both of you were eventually destined to become teachers. So how did you end up entering the music business? Because uh, the idea of being a teacher was okay. But that hunger and that creativity for putting out records and working with music was overwhelming. It took first base with me and it took first base with him that we can make money with our talent, with our love for this industry. You and Johnny graduated from FAMU. Were you both teaching at the time? And when did you decide to start Deep City Records? We started talking about Deep City Records, I guess, from the very first day of teaching before we graduated. But we just didn't have the access to studios and the time to put in. But the idea of putting out records and having record labels, we started long before we graduated. I think our first label was Lloyd, L-L-O-Y-D. And after we put out some music on Lord, we needed to put out another song. The thing was, you don't put out a song on the same label and then do another song and put it on the same label. We had to have Lord, one label. Then we had another label called Deep City. Then we had another label called Drive. So every time we put out a new song, we put it on a different label. So what we had to do was name the labels as we had the songs. Different labels for different artists or different labels for different songs? For different artists. So tell us about how you started Deep City Records. Johnny was what you might call a social person. You know, don't, friend, don't lock me in, let me out. I'm going, hey, Willie, let's go, let's go. We go to Thomasville, we go to all the clubs, and then we come back and go to class the next morning. So he took me to this club. And I said, where's the club? He said, it's in the basement of that big house over there. I said, John, I don't like going on the ground for nothing. He said, come <laughs> on, you you like it. And I said, by the way, what's the name of this club? He said, Deep City. I said, wow, that's kind of scary, but it's exciting. So we went in this club and it was an underground club. Everything was in the big basement of this house. And I said, Johnny, this would be a good name. This is a good name, be a good name for a record label. 
And that's how we came up with the name. He said, it reminded him of the guys were from Miami. So I said, they might not like it. We would comment on their name. He said, well, they got a nightclub. We're going to have a record label. So, you know, they can have a nightclub. We'll have a record. When did he start the record store? It was started around the time we were teaching school. At first, it was meant to be a drugstore because Johnny majored in pharmacy. He's a highly intelligent, very smart man, which surprised the hell out of me. But... <laughs> 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 but he was what you might call a very smart, brainy person. And his mother was a principal in high school, so I guess it was inherited. He changed his major to business ed. He even got his barber's license. So the first thing he did at the record shop, it, it was a dry cleaners. There was Johnny's dry cleaners. And I kept talking to Johnny, what the hell are we doing with a dry cleaners? How are we going to write songs and put out records? And you got a dry cleaners, and you need to turn this, <laughs> need to turn this place into a record shop. His mom didn't particularly like that, but I, we went to the same thing: the love of music. And by him being buying all the hit records, it wasn't too hard to get him to go against Mama's rule and say, "Hey, I'm gonna have Johnny's record shop." So we put a piano in the back room. And a tape recorder, real to real. He just shut that down completely and opened up Johnny's Records. So by the time that you met Betty Wright, how many artists had you had for Deep City Records? We had Little Beaver. I'm a man just like you. I'm a man just like you. You got your ring and I'll cut mine. Frank Williams and the Rocketeers. The Movers. Paul Kelly. Clarence Reed. Johnny K. So Betty Wright, she walks in, blows you guys away. Why was she in the record store in the first place? She came to the shop basically to pick up a free record. But I guess that tune on the radio, she named the tune, the artist or whatever. So she got to collect any record of her choice at Johnny's Record Shop. So I guess she wanted Billy Stewart. So she came to the shop. There was never a recording studio at Johnny's Record Shop. It was a songwriting, a creative 
room in the back where we put the material together and rehearsed. It was a very small room. You could almost stretch your arms out and touch the walls. I don't know whether she knew we were in the back, but I think she knew that we were in the record business and we were recording songs because we'd have some dynamite hit songs on Helene and a couple of other artists. And we were in the back rehearsing and writing songs. In other words, we had what you might call everybody in the room. Let's see which songs we're going to do. Songs for Helene, songs for the movers, and so forth. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, we heard this voice singing loud, Summertime, the Billy Stewart song. Somebody looked at it. That's not Billy Stewart. You mean somebody covered his song? That sounds like it's going to be a hit. And then all of a sudden the music stopped, but the voice kept going. We said, wait a minute. So we went out, we opened the door and opened the part to the record shop. And here was this young girl standing there singing, shaking pictures on the wall singing summertime without the track it was Betty Wright I mean she was laying it down doing a she was doing everything that we had recorded that uh, cover on Billy Stewart with Betty it would have been a hit because she nailed it when I think back I think she came there and knew we were there and blasted the walls down with her voice. And she was in immediately for an investment to record for Deep City. How old was she? Well, uh, she was always a, a, a big girl, so we didn't know how old she was. I just knew she was like as tall as me or taller than me. And uh, her voice was so mature. And we came out front. And I asked her a few questions. I forgot exactly what I asked her, uh, you know, a name. And I'm pretty sure I asked her age and what grade, but she didn't tell us the truth about her age and, and what grade she was in. The age she gave us was like she was 16 or 17. But in reality, uh, we found out later, after we had invested money in her, that she was like 13 going on 14. So we backed off. <laughs> we backed off immediately. What was it about her voice that you liked? It was mature. It was exciting, and it sounded professional. It sounded like she could really deliver any song that we wrote. It sounded like a, a, a voice with experience. It wasn't shy. It was aggressive, forceful, and on key. Was it hard to find those kind of female voices around the area at that time? Oh, yeah. As far as the word I'm leaving out, which is I shouldn't, is that uh, she could sound really funky. She had what you might call hardcore, straight ahead, good phrasing. When you hear Aretha Franklin singing on her funky R&B sound, mm -hmm. how she nailed the lyrics and the moves, that's what Betty Wright was like. She sounded like a record already. <laughs> did you have songs that you needed to connect with the singer? Or did you think, well, we got to write some songs for this young talent that just walked in? 
Clarence had heard her before. So I believe that he already had in mind what kind of song he wanted to record on her. The feel, the only thing was missing basically was the words, you know, how to pull the words together. He had the title and stuff like that. She seemed like she no more about 16, 17, maybe 18. So her very first song, I Need a Man, it was a very mature for her. I said, Clarence, uh, you sure you want to uh, write a song like that for her? Uh, he said, yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, yeah, this is the way to take her on an avenue that nobody else is on. Did you have to get permission from her parents in order to record her? Betty Wright, when I met her, she was like, I am my own boss. I want to do this, and I want to do it with Willie Clark, Clarence Reed, and Johnny's Record Shop, and Deep City Records. What we had to do first was to draw up a contract. You don't need a contract unless you have something for the contract to cover. You know, why have a contract when you don't know what's going to happen? So we would have an idea, we went in the studio first to record her on two songs. And when we record her on her first two songs, Paralyzed. His love keeps me satisfied. And every girl likes to feel satisfied. His love makes me feel Paralyzed was number one in Miami. And the flip side was number one in Tampa, around Palm Beach, all North Florida and everywhere. So then it was time to present the contract. Now we can spend the money to have a contract drawn up. So she recorded before you had a contract? Yeah, it was like an audition, you know what I mean? Recording contracts cost like $500 to $1,000 plus with the lawyers involved. And so you want to know if it's worth the time and money. Before we put the record out, I had to go and uh, uh, confront her mother to make sure that she was the age that she said she was. For Betty to sign the management contract and her mom co-signed as a witness. Now, this was before I realized that we might be working with somebody that's not telling us the truth, even though they had a lot of leadership qualities and aggressiveness and ready to go. So I grew up a management contract and took it to her mother to make sure. So what happened there? Because, <laughs> because you said that she lied about her age. You know, even though she had a bossy attitude, a very aggressive, I'm my own boss, we kept looking at the fact that, hey, how could she be in eighth grade and 16 years old? <laughs> <laughs> and getting in fights every day. <laughs> Was that because you were worried about your certification as teachers? Yeah, 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 yeah. You got that right. We didn't want to take any chances, even though with the mother's signature on the management contract, it was like, okay, all right, it's okay. We can go with it. We're very careful about dealing with people on the age. 
I went to her mom and I gave her mom the title of the songs and her mom gave me this fr- funny look. Now, what was the title of the song? It was the one that we wanted as a number one song, Paralyzed. And the flip side, it was very provocative. I need some man to love me, some man to treat me right. I don't care whether he's short or tall. All I want is his love most of all. I need some man who knows how to love me, who knows how to treat me right. I guess mom wasn't too happy when she heard those titles and saw those lyrics. And then she looked at me and she said, you're going to put that song out on my daughter? I said, if she signed a contract, she got to sign some kind of obligation. I think it was like 17 years old that it was okay, but still it's good to get the mom in on the deal. When did her mom realize that she had lied to you about her age? So the mom looked at me and and she said, do you know how old my daughter is? I said, 16 and she'll be 17. And she said, no, my daughter's 14 going on 15. And that's when I backed up in a corner and almost passed out. I said, oh, my, this money we invested in. But the mom signed the contract anyway. But we did not release the record. We just put Betty Wright on hold. We put everything on hold. So Betty was there while this conversation was going on? No, she was not. When did you actually confront her about lying about her age? I didn't see her. (laughs) Good question. She knew I had had the meeting with her mom, so she, like, disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't, she couldn't come to rehearsals or do anything after that. We had to wait. I think it was a year before we would start back working with her, before we put out the record. And after we released the record, we waited some more before we put her back in the studio, maybe six months. Was that preliminary recording the actual record that was released? Yes, Tell us about what happened when she showed up or you saw her again. The next time I saw her again, she was ready to rehearse and go back in in the studio. Yeah, but what did she say when you say, now you lied about your age, girl. Why you lie about I I, I didn't confront her like that. She already knew that. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted her to sing. And that she did. But we, as a company trying to get off the ground and being a financing our recordings through, through teaching school, that we played the precautionary thing and just leaned back and waited a little while before we start back coming up on a follow-up. It was a little while after that. So you decide you're going to release that record. So you get the wax pressed. You've got the records ready. What's the next step? The next step was to get it on the radio. And how do you do that? First of all, back then, those days, the way we did it, we had personal access 
to the R&B stations. Because as you know, it was the 60s. So we had DJs like Butterball, Fred Hanna, Nikki Lee, the guy on WEDR. We knew these Black DJs because when we go out to the nightclubs, we would see them and they would be doing talent shows and stuff like that. And they would emceeing in, in the nightclubs. So we had access to them. So we would uh, do our little, whatever payola we could do. And I think the going thing then for, for peons, like we were back then, we're not exactly peons, but our money was limited. So uh, for 50 to $100, they would give our record a shot, even if they didn't hear it. They would give it a shot. Now, you know? payola was not legal, was it? It was illegal. It was illegal and legal. You turn your head on it. In other words, Pepsi Cola pay for advertisement. So you pay to advertise your music. <laughs> I guess that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah, that's what payola was. That's why it was able to be accepted back there because of that kind of, when you look at it, hey, they pay, so you pay. You want to make money, they want to make. If they can pay, you can pay a little bit. They pay a thousand, at least you can pay 50. <laughs> but that seems like a lot of money back then. For us, it was. But on the other hand, our biggest thing was to be able to hear it played. And it was well worth that and more just to hear it come back to us over the air. And say, hey, did you hear it? Did you hear it? And then if it got played by a DJ more than one time, like Betty Wright's music, it was like, bam, bam, bam. And Helene Smith, willing and able. Bam, bam, bam. You know, the $50, now that was on certain occasions that we gave uh, DJs music and they'll play it one or two times. And after that, you wouldn't hear it anymore. But I guess it all depends on the response that the DJs get from the public when they hear the record. And I had that experience with uh, Butterball. He was a very close friend of mine. Butterball, WMBM. It's the ball, y'all. He was a big time DJ in Miami. He used to give me the keys to his apartment. So if I had some extracurricular activities, I hey, it really has the key. So I knew he was an honest, very personal type person to me. Was he the first one to play the record? Yeah, WMBM was the first to break the better right tune. Now, is it only after the record is played and people want the record? Is that when you put it in the record stores? I could not put it in the record stores. That was a big problem with us. We didn't have distribution. However, Better Rights song got so much attention in Tampa, Florida, and Central Florida, and Jacksonville, that the distributor, uh, Tone Distributor, owned by Henry Stone, requested distribution of the record. The way we got it played, we had to invite the DJs to come to Miami give them a party on the weekend on Miami Beach. I don't tell you uh, the extracurricular activities and the champagne bottles and the, and the beautiful girls and stuff like that. Do tell a little now. <laughs> this is history. <laughs> well, I tell you, I tell you, we got a, uh, number one, we had a hit record, but we wanted it really played with, we figured it was worth the investment. 
Helene was doing well for us, but this Betty Wright record, both sides of it was a hit. So we invited them to Miami, get a hotel suite, uh, three or four fifths of good booze, and sent three or four girls over there. And when they got back on it, they couldn't wait to come to the next party. <laughs> In other words, we didn't have the money, like the big money, like maybe five, six hundred, a thousand dollars. We had to get to the heart and, and what you might call the emotions of these DJs to accept us as very close friends, you know. But at the same time. If the they records are not they, good, if the at the same yeah, at the same you time, got that right. yeah. So we made sure that we were investing in the right record when we went to that extreme. So we can't call on uh, uh, girlfriends and friend girls. Hey, this DJ is coming out of Jacksonville. This DJ is coming. Two of them coming out of Tampa. Blah blah blah. The record had already have made a, a move. You know what I mean? What was Betty's reaction to having a hit record? She started making money and she bought a house and she moved out of the project. Off of that one record? Yeah. Did it get national distribution? No, it got what you might call Florida and North Florida. It made enough noise for her to do jobs and make enough money. And by the time that record got hot, we had recorded other songs on her. You said this one record was enough for her to move out of the projects and, and get her life in order. It sounds like you had a pretty fair deal with her. And she had a pretty fair deal with us. It was a team thing between me, her, and Clarence. She could deliver, we could write. I could produce and engineer and leadership qualities because I was trained like that from being in the marching hundred as a section leader in the drum line and having a, what you might call good leadership qualities for being trained to be a teacher. So she knew who she was working with and she insisted that I be at every rehearsal. Tell you the truth, I did not want to be obligated to every rehearsal. Why did she want you there? She, from what she told me, say they don't know what they're doing without you. Mm. I believed in her. I just had other obligations as, as a family man and teaching school that the people I was working with, like Anna Lawberry, Clarence Reed, and Johnny, uh, they could handle it, that I didn't have to be there all the time. So take us to her next release, Girls Can't Do What the Guys Do. That came out in 68, and it hit number 15 on the R&B charts and number 33 nationally. The guys are gonna wanna go out and play sometimes. But girls, you must have let it get you down. Just take this advice I give you. That was after I'd taken her over to Henry Stone at TK Productions. 
That's when that record was recorded. That's when you took her there from your record label? Yeah, Deep City. Why did you take her over to Stone? Because my partner didn't want to invest in her anymore. Why not? A mystery to me, basically, I think it was because Helene, our number one singer, it was almost like he could not phantom or believe that what Clarence and I was telling, we were telling him, we said, Johnny, we got a female vocalist who can sing this style of song, and we got another female vocalist can sing this kind of song. Now we got two dynamite singers, female, and we got Little Beaver, and we got the movers. We're ready to roll. Competition between Helene and Betty Wright, I think he underestimated the ability for me and Clarence being excited to have these people who could deliver the music. We were excited about writing for both of them. Well, who was Helene to Johnny? He eventually married her. But they weren't married at the time. No, she managed the record shop. She was there when Betty came in and sang the song to win the record. Do you think that him being sweet on her might have influenced his decision? Yeah, well, something did, other than the idea (laughs) (laughs) that I couldn't understand why he had, I'm not bragging, I'm just bragging, had two of the best songwriters, musically, lyrically, and, and leadership quality, that he did not trust us to work with both artists. So the only thing that I could look at is that it must have been that being people are like that. I was motivated to do music. Girls can't do what the guys do. That was a monster hit single across the country. How did that feel for you? And how did that feel for Betty? How did that change your lives? Well, it changed our lives to know that we could do it. It was proven right on the spot right then and there when this song took off and she was able to make those payments and buy the car and take good care of family and stuff like that from one or two songs. We, we were excited and, and everything started getting better. I could buy me a Cadillac or whatever. So Austin Records released an album first time around and the first song that was a hit was Pure Love hit number 40 on the R&B charts. Why was there such a lag between Girls Can't Do What the Guys Do in 68 and Pure Love in 1970? Did it take that long to create that album? During the time we were doing that, she was busy doing what you might call gigs, dates. People wanted to book her, and that was cash flow right there, you know? Is that where you really make the money? All the artists, if they looking to make money in this business. It's all in live performance. The money you make from the record sales and the streaming and all that, just hope you can pay your light bill with that because that's why all these big, big superstars who make a whole lot of money with big records and all that, they have a whole lot of bills. So that's why they keep going on tours. Somebody can make $10,000 
$3 million in a year or less by going on tours, they're not making anywhere near that waiting for royalties. So the money going to come to the artists when the artists can get on stage and make the money and draw the crowd. Other than that, if you're going to sit around and wait, think you're going to be rich waiting for songwriting royalties, forget it. Be sure to join us for part two of this interview as Clark recounts how Betty Wright, still a teenager, went gold with Cleanup Woman. Visit the Deep City Records YouTube channel for updates of their latest releases and check out the documentary, Deep City, The Birth of the Miami Sound. In September 1968, the Clark Reed penned Girls Can't Do What the Guys Do reached number 15 on the Billboard R&B Singles Chart and number 33 on the Hot 100. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to this podcast and feel free to discuss on the Song Surgery Podcast Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Until next time.